Railroad workers may vote to accept Biden's labor deal, but what he calls a big win might be a big loss for labor in the long run. I'm Monica Perez, and this is Today's Deep Dive. To listen to Today's Deep Dive and all of my previous deep dives and dive master interviews and buddy dives, commercial-free, go to my solo feed, Deep Dives with Monica Perez, and get all of those all of those episodes, all of those formats, commercial-free for the foreseeable future. And if you want to get all of my stuff and all of Binkley's stuff, free and premium, and all the video, then go to rockfin.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there. So without further ado, let us continue with this deep dive. Biggest story in the news this week probably should have been Ukraine, but it was railroad workers threatening to strike. The diving board here is from the New York Times. Railroad unions and companies reach a tentative deal to avoid a strike. I always hate that word used in that way, like tentative, like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It's like a provisional deal because it's the proviso being that the vote, the workers, the, the union members need to vote to accept this deal. There's a little subtitle there called President Biden praised the agreement as a, quote, big win for workers and the rail companies. Now, in business, I remember thinking or hearing, I think it was the philosophy of one of my bosses or one of my husband's bosses was that, you know, you made the best deal possible when both people walk away feeling bad. And I think even Trump might have said that. Like, you both have to feel like you left something on the table or the optimal deal was not made. So anyway, there isn't usually a big win for both sides. I guess there is. I guess there's the Pareto optimal position where every incremental trade gave at least somebody something more without taking something away from the other guy. Uh, So who knows where they are? And if it was really even totally in good faith, I really don't know because I don't take anything at face value. Uh, But yes, they did agree in any case, the workers agreed not to strike until they had a chance to vote. So what was happening was they've been kind of in negotiations for years, I guess, and they really never came up with anything. And there are certain government like laws and regulations that limit how these guys strike. Like federal workers can't strike, so Amtrak can't go on strike. The air air traffic controllers can't go on strike. That's how Reagan fired them all when they said that when they did go on strike. But these aren't federal workers. However, because railroads are so important and they share the, the rails with Amtrak, for example, so Amtrak went and canceled a bunch of of trips because they didn't want people to get stranded in face of a strike. Now, that could have just been a way to like make people feel it. <laughs> just raise the tension. There's a lot of tension around this. But there are actual laws and restrictions on how they can strike. And one of the things that the what Biden has the, the right to do, or whatever the legislative authority to do, is to force them to take a 60-day kind of waiting period during which he can appoint, and he did appoint, a presidential board to figure something out. And if at the end of those 60 days, the board comes up with a recommendation And if the unions don't agree with it or if anybody doesn't agree with it, Congress, I think, actually has the authority to force them to accept that deal. And 
in addition to that, they have the authority to reject that deal, but appoint an arbitrator to come up with a contract and basically force them to sign it. This is what I'm gathering from. It's kind of, it was hard, a little hard to do primary research here because these are just press statements and stuff. So I got my stuff from Barron's, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, and I put it all in the show notes, which you can find at monicasdeepdives.com. I'm kind of transitioning. Binkley's got patreon.com slash propaganda report, which you can find his stuff there. And I used to kind of live there, but I don't do any premium stuff anymore. So I converted the propreport.com to uh, monicasdeepdives.com for all my free stuff. So you can check that out. Hopefully it's working. I'm I'm not fully launching it yet because it's not totally ironed out, but it should still be usable. Anyway, so I'll put all the show notes there. And uh, the board came up with an agreement that the unions did not accept. So let me read a little quote from Barron's. Two years of negotiation failed to yield an accord between the railroads and the 12 unions representing some 115,000 workers. So Biden appointed the Presidential Emergency Board in July to propose a settlement. Okay, so that settlement wasn't accepted, but and Congress did not invoke its right immediately to force them to accept it. But Biden came in and, and came up with a compromise. And I don't know how different it was from what the board recommended, but they, he came up with a compromise. He got he wants to take credit for it. He wants to give Booty Gig credit for it. Maybe this was all just an opportunity for for Pete Buttigieg or whatever his name is to take the limelight because he's the transportation secretary. And I would just assume, under normal circumstances, that there's no way the unions would have a big strike in. October really disruptive strike. Like this would have not only disrupted commuters and Amtrak and even long distance passengers, but it would have had a terribly exacerbating effect on any of the supply chain issues. So if you go back to my deep dive on the perfect storms, you'll see supply chain was a big thing. Like all sorts of things had to happen for the supply chain to get as gnarled as it was, which makes me think that they made all these different things happen in order to give justification for something that would have to take a perfect storm. So there's just like a million perfect storms, which don't make them so perfect, right? Then they're just storms. So, but this would be adding to that. So just as the supply chain, this is even was in one of the articles I read in the Wall Street Journal, just as the supply chain issues were easing up, this thing could mess them up again. And I even anticipated that. I was like, as soon as something, you know, one of these factors eases, another factor will replace it. And I felt that way a little bit about inflation as well. So they're saying this would be inflationary because it would raise the price level given that truckers and stuff would be so capacity constrained to take this extra freight that it would drive prices up. But that's not really inflation. That's that's a price level Increase inflation is when the monetary policy is expansionary. So it just keeps printing money. And since they're really not doing that the way they used to, it kind of has to accelerate for there to be inflation. When they were talking about the Fed raising rates and talking a lot about inflation, I I just had this nagging feeling that like in order for, for the inflation to persist, they have to keep having price shocks or really expand the money supply, which is hard to do in the wake of having expanded it like in unprecedented levels already. Yet I've always felt, or at least I've felt since the fall of 2019, that the Fed has to get rates back up to 5%, at least 4%. And for them to continue to push, which is having a a bad impact on 
the stock market. It's It makes us fear and maybe we'll actually make happen a recession. And it's it's not good. So for the Fed to justify keeping doing this, they have to keep registering these big inflationary numbers. And that was another thing I kind of wondered, will we see continued price level shocks that they call, you know, kind of in the vernacular, they call it inflation, but as Milton Friedman said, inflation is always an everywhere monetary phenomenon. So I feel like they're calling this inflationary. And so I kind of expected this to happen because I expected them to want to keep pushing the supply chain issues, keep pushing the inflation narrative. And maybe it will happen after November. Maybe they'll delay the vote. I don't know. But it's certainly the can has kicked a little bit. I mean, that would be kind of ideal for them, I think, is to make this happen after the vote. Might be a little too obvious. Um, but yeah, in, in former days, like the unions would never screw Democrats in a midterm election where they were on their heels and there was a Democrat in office. But Trump made some headway with unions and it seemed to be like there is a possibility that the unions aren't just following orders. However, uh, you know, things the paradigms are shifting everywhere. So I can't help but think that these things are, you, you can't predict them the way you used to. And I think they do that on purpose because they don't want you to predict it. Anyway, um, let me read you another quote from Barron's. Okay, the August recommendations of a presidential emergency board called for wage increases that added up to a compounded 24% boost for the years 2020 to 2024. Workers would get an immediate 14% raise and get paid retroactively. This sounds a lot like what's in Biden's thing. I think there was one extra little thing in Biden's package about sick days, but we'll get to that. All right. It says, uh, pay was not the biggest sticking point, Barron says. At the end of the last contract in 2020, the average employee of the Class 1 freight railroads earned over $135,000 a year in salary and benefits. The average employee of the Class 1 freight, and I think of the entire class of railroad employees, I think I saw somewhere else where it said 110000 So this isn't far off like the general. Uh, average Average. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, they uh, that put them in the top 10% of U.S. workers. If the presidential board's recommendations were adopted, the average salary would move above 150000 the average. So uh, anyway, they got most of that. And and Barron goes on to say, but this, this Barron's article is written prior to today or yesterday when Biden announced this, his proposal. It's similar. Uh, that Barron says the deal was good enough to persuade leaders at nine of the 12 bargaining unions to take the terms back to their members for a vote. But two unions, the Teamster-affiliated Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, and the Transportation Division of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, remained unsatisfied, and they represent over 60,000 engineers and conductors. Wow, and I think it's 7,000 trains. All right, so... The way the Wall Street Journal presented it going into this Biden negotiated position was the unions want, this is, this is the extra thing above the money. The unions want 15 paid sick days each year that they could use on demand for other reasons. So like if somebody else is sick or whatever, like you don't have to have it approved, you don't have to actually be sick. And the, the problem is it really poses significant issues for railroad scheduling. I've read this not just in the journal, elsewhere, and that actually the reason they have such restrictive rules and getting more restrictive is as they lost employees over COVID who did not return, 
they and I, I wonder now if they if they had vaccine mandates, I should have looked that up. I think Amtrak had to suspend their vaccine mandates because they were just losing too many workers. But you would lose a lot of workers and they wouldn't come back if that's how it's going. I don't know for sure. Anyway, I don't know at all. Um, just wondering. So what was happening is they didn't have enough workers and and you have to have these people there in order to run the trains. If there's any delay, it just cascades through the system. So they were like, you can't just take days off. They have vacation days, but sick days are different because they're unplanned. And uh, and actually, I if I ever had like household help or nannies or whatever, I would give them tons of vacation pay, tons. And if they are, I'd give them like a really whatever, you know, I was generous with that, but I made sure it was like limited and I would pay them. If they worked for me, they could work that day. And then I would also pay their vacation separately. Like they didn't have to actually take the days off, but I never paid sick days because I didn't want to have to have that, um, issue at the last minute. I don't want to have a dispute. I'm like giving you time, you know, however much you want, that's totally fine. Call them sick days if you want. And if you're really sick, stay home, but you're not getting extra for staying home because it just sets up perverse incentives. Um, but as long as you're giving them lots and lots of days off that they can plan ahead, they're not going to be tempted to just take days off unannounced where, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, like if you need to take, if you want to go to Six Flags with your kids and you can't take an unpaid day off and you've, you want to get paid for it. You can't tell them in advance and still get paid for it. Or you'd have to take a vacation day. Whereas if you have sick days on the table, you will take a sick day cause you'll get paid for it. But that means you have to call in sick that morning. Anyway, maybe, maybe I'm not making sense. I thought I felt it made sense at the time. I think it does make sense. Okay. So I don't know if that's why they were doing that. They also, some of the arguments I heard from the labor side was that they'd have to be on call and that would mean that they'd have to miss doctor's appointments and couldn't go to family funerals, for example. So like they would have to be on call so that if somebody called in sick, they would have to show up with, uh, within 90 minutes. So, I mean, it just, these, these issues kind of bop around and, um, feed on themselves. The wall street journal goes on to say, that the workers already receive on average three weeks of paid vacation, and some senior workers get up to five weeks. Most rail employees also get a combination of up to 14 days of holiday and personal days. See, that's what you want to do. You want to do it like that, because sick days they have to call in at the last minute. Uh, the Presidential Emergency Board has recommended an additional personal day and that attendance policy should be dealt with through binding arbitration rather than national collective bargaining. I wonder if he's calling on Congress to shepherd that system. The union holdouts represent about half of all the workers, though the other unions have said that they will go on strike if those guys strike. So, all right. And then um, now, after the fact, New York Times came in with uh, their assessment of what's happening right now as we go to air. Although the agreement included compromise by both sides, workers ultimately won several of the concessions they were seeking, including better pay and more flexible schedules like time off for medical appointments. Talks had stalled over a push for companies to improve working conditions, including allowing workers to take unpaid leave to visit physicians. The agreement grants that ability, giving workers one additional paid day off and an ability to attend medical appointments without penalty, labor unions said. See, to me, that's like, you can plan that in advance. So that shouldn't have been really a problem. If you're getting personal days or you're getting vacation days, if you're getting 
on average, three weeks of paid vacation, I mean, you should, you know, go to Aruba for a week and, <laughs> you know, take a vacation day once in a while. I don't know, whatever. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I understand the point of view of people in those positions, and I don't know all the details. I do, it, does, it is a buttload of money, though. <laughs> uh, anyway... So, yeah, so uh, the big issues were why it was freaking people out are the supply chain issues, that there would be shortages everywhere. People were, you know, back to buying food. Every once in a while, something scares you enough to go buy another crate of food. Um, but I, I also feel like the big, the big agenda item behind the global, the supply chain fears is, now even if this is just a um, domestic problem, Although it isn't because they go to the ports and everything. They use those container ships and the containers go from the ships to the trains. So it's definitely an import-export problem as well. But I feel like all of these ideas of supply chain issues and shortages, all of that is folding into what definitely appears to be what I'm going to say is a, you know, a change in direction from globalism to regionalism as far as our policies go. And I feel like we are definitely headed into a Cold War with China. Um, don't forget that Big Defense is a sister of Big Tech or mother of Big Tech. Big Defense is driving this Cold War with China, in my opinion. And the new war, the new war war and the new Cold War will be technical, digital, roboticized, all of that. So that would explain why it's all over the news about the semiconductors being brought in, who's going to make Tesla's lithium batteries. Now... I don't know if I mentioned this recently or what, but that Bolivian coup was about the guy making batteries in Bolivia and not just selling the raw materials to us to make them here or wherever they're being made. So there's a lot of stuff plugging into what I call, to borrow Mussolini's term, autarky, to be completely insulated in case of war and be able to do all your manufacturing and everything. And I started to think, like, is this regionalization really affecting us um, just physically, or is it also affecting immigration? So I looked up, is Chinese immigration going down in this country? And I had done some work previously on the skyrocketing incidents of Chinese students going to our colleges, and they pay more, like international fees are higher, so they can get in, and maybe they have better tests, whatever. So they were really competing with our students to get into some of these good schools, so the first article that came up for me had a title, uh, the number of Chinese students, college students, something like that, declines dramatically, dramatically. So it could be Chinese immigration across the board is going down, that we are actually hunkering down for this Cold War. And I feel like anything that feeds into the supply chain narrative is a part of that. So that's what looks to be the agenda on its face. Now I had to ask myself, like, what might be the underlying agenda in addition to that? Because as soon as this looked like it might not happen, I was like, well, they're not throwing a wrench into the supply chain. They're not pumping up the inflation narrative right this minute. If this never happens, what's, what would the bigger agenda be? Like when I talked about the college thing, yes, he wants to forgive school loans, but what he really wants is free college, and free college plugs into government subsidizing corporate training programs, that's for sure. And actually, I found that in, in my studies here, in my research, was that the infrastructure bill that passed in 2021, I think it was, had $105 billion for rail. 
66 billion, I think, was Amtrak, and uh, but I think five billion went kind of directly to uh, this kind of freight stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't find the exact details. But one thing I stumbled upon it was that there was money earmarked for an all-black university to use to train their students to be train engineers, which I think is kind of weird if it was a four-year school. It doesn't seem like a four-year degree. But what it, I mean, you're taking government money to train people to work for private enterprise. Like that's just subsidizing the cost of labor for the corporations for sure. And then I saw somebody tweet just today. I saw somebody tweet. I think I actually copied it here. Uh, it was a picture of Ron DeSantis, and it said, this is a great day for Florida. And it was about the Career Source Florida Network and the REACH Act. And what that is, is it's just a way to take government money and use it to train people for jobs. And it's always couched in terms of helping minorities, always. And maybe they'll move that to poor people too. But in my mind, it's not about that at all. That's just an excuse. They're fine if they're minorities, they don't care either way, but it's just an excuse, a justification to get government money into the corporate training system. And it's totally unfair. As a taxpayer, let people make the choice of using rail or IBM or whatever, based on the actual cost they're delivering to you. Don't take IBM and have them bribe some government uh, official to use our tax dollars to lower their cost of labor. I mean, it really distorts the economy. It distorts the efficient allocation of resources, not to mention it makes me pay for something that I might not value as highly as the cost is. It masks the cost. It's not cool. And they do it, and DeSantis is doing it, and he's getting you know tweeted, tweeted snaps for it. So obviously, the railroads are in the infrastructure plan. There's definitely government money going there. Warren Buffett owns one of the big ones. So you got to know there's there's some stuff afoot. Uh, but I did want to figure out what were the biggest agenda items here as far as the longer-term thing, like that college thing. You know, yes, there's a little bit of money in the infrastructure thing for training engineers, but what might be the bigger picture? And I and I have to say, whenever I see labor making a huge amount of money and their unions demanding more and getting it, I remember what my father told me that his father told him like in the 30s, <laughs> so long ago. And it was, so I was watching TV with my dad, we were watching whatever the news, and it, it, it had like dock workers. And he said, when he was a kid, 95% of all the ships in the world were kind of commissioned in the US. And now it's like 5%. And he said, he remembers when his father said that the stevedores union, and the stevedores were the dock workers, I think, the stevedores union were pricing themselves out of a job. And over time, stevedores weren't replaced by non-union labor. They were replaced by containers. And containers, like those container ships that go from the containers that are on the ships that go straight to the trains. And I have read, and I've mentioned to you, that those containers could be the single greatest efficiency booster in the 20th century, I guess maybe before the tech revolution, but maybe not. Like, that's how efficient that was. And, you know, it's possible, I don't know what the timing was, but it's possible that the unions were betraying their, their workers because capital wanted to switch to containers. And 
I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. And so I wondered if that could be at work here. And I probably should have just like been like, oh, obviously. But, you know, I just, I looked into it a little bit and then it was obvious what where it was coming from. Or I should say what could be an agenda. It was on the one hand, World Economic Forum article I found on the future of rail. And also this thing I found on automated trains, on automated trains. And that's what I think I think their ultimate agenda here for sure is to move towards automation. But the thing I found, I hate to think it's super cool, but it is looks super cool to me. It's established by a team of software engineers from SpaceX and Google. So I should be running and screaming. And the guy who founded it worked at like Lockheed Martin and whatever, like clearly a defense guy. So I know this is part of the agenda, but what it is, it's called Parallel Systems. And if you look at it, and it just got uh, ARPA money and Department of Energy money, it's these like four-wheeler dollies. That's what we call it when we move furniture, the four-wheeler. It's just on the floor. It's not like a reefer dolly that stands upright. So it's like a four-wheeler dolly that's electric, and it's it can go 500 miles. It takes an hour to charge, and it fits right on the rails that we have now. And what they do is they take two of these four-wheelers, and they put them in just the right place, and then they lower the container onto it. So it looks like a real ch- a container flatbed, but it's not. It's just the wheels. And then it'll, and then each one can go separately, or they can platoon, like they can clump together and go like that. But it adds a level of flexibility. It, um, it's all that green crap, like whatever electric. Uh, but th- because it's like fully automated, it's supposed supposedly. I mean, probably true. Like it can go much faster and get closer together. And they actually have programs like that now for the current trains that like if they're the more automated they are, the faster and more efficient and closer together they can get, which is obviously good for the owners. So I just suspect that these guys are pricing themselves out of jobs. And maybe it'll just be a, a function of attrition. Like if there really is a recession and they just end up firing a bunch of people, they'll say, look, we can't afford this extravagant labor labor. And we don't need it because we're in recession. Like, I don't, I'm not 100% sure how it will play out, but this is definitely something to work out for. And then actually the deal, to the extent it does contribute, like if, if the personal day thing, it just it didn't look that radical to me, but if that did contribute to scheduling issues, it would further weaken the position of labor, further motivate and justify that the owner's are going to want to automate. Like, sorry, but we can't work around these systems. Like, we don't have the workers. They don't show up. I I can just see that happening. And one thing that I I stumbled upon in researching this about the parallel systems is uh, the expression deep tech, which I did not know what that was. And anything deep intrigues me. (laughs) So deep tech is tech solutions to engineering challenges. And what these guys who are invested in parallel, they, they're all like AI guys and everything, the investors in this company, and they want to disrupt traditional industries and totally remake them. So like the opening salvo is like, rail hasn't changed in 100 years. Well, it's going to, ra- or 200 years, it's going to radically change now. Um, it looks like this is very much in the incubation stage, but it definitely looks like the future. And the World Economic Forum actually, in their articles about rail said the word platooning, which I think the parallel systems guys coined. So they're obviously of a piece. So the World Economic Forum and the parallel systems said that one of their big goals is to move freight away from trucks and onto trains. 
And that, and we, we are at the same time having trucker problems, trucker shortages, um, increased rates, and the World Economic Forum actually almost outright recommends uh, exorbitant tolls on trucks in order to make the cost of trucking commensurate with freight trains so that people will move over or be indifferent between the two. It's obvious what they're doing. They're clearly serving their agenda. And I don't even think they're hiding it because how many people are reading their article on the future of rail? I don't know. Anyway, so, but the things that they say are, oh, and by the way, George, the friendly truck driver agreed to come on and talk about the state of trucking. So I'll have to get my, my bleep button handy because he's got a little foul mouth. <laughs> anyway, so there's a few things such as more data that the World Economic Forum wants out of having these, they're really autonomous train pods, but they want, you know, they'll take like the autonomous train before they get to the autonomous train pod, like World Economic Forum just wants to move towards not having human beings run it, having it centrally controlled. They want the data that comes out of that. They want um, international coordination. They claim that it is efficiency and stuff, but imagine like, and I actually, one of the things I was wondering is if there's some element of taxpayer subsidy in the Biden deal or any kind of, you know, the more that the government gets involved, the more that you could make an argument that like Amtrak, this stuff should be nationalized or I doubt it'll be nationalized if Warren Buffett owns it, but, or more like more regulated to the point where this stuff gets all plugged into a system, in which case you would never, ever, ever get a new competitor, which the incumbents generally like. It says right in the World Economic Forum thing, it would stabilize supply chains because you wouldn't have all these pesky human beings running around causing trouble. And of course, they use climate as an excuse, just like they use race as an excuse to subsidize corporate labor. They use climate as an excuse to eliminate labor <laughs> altogether, to, to subsidize uh, the capital labor trade-off. So there's a few other things. Yeah, I mean, Booty Gig gets a win. Who knows how Warren Buffett will benefit from this, probably in the long run, because he's no doubt would love to have a highly subsidized, highly automated, no labor industry to dominate. So I did get some, some tweets so we can hear what people are thinking about this subject. Jeremiah, this is in no particular order. Thank you, everyone, for answering the call. Jeremiah says, the labor union isn't negotiating with the railroad companies. They are negotiating with government to pay out the money. So I don't know if he means that the taxpayers are going to pay. Barack's rat says, really, the only issue I have with unions is when the government gets involved. If the railroads and the union both reach a deal that they find mutually beneficial, good on them. I totally agree, and that is what my father taught me, and I've always believed that and agree with it. However, right now, I feel like the unions are there 100% to control and betray labor. So like, there's a concept in law, the Good Samaritan thing. You, you are under no duty to help other people unless your presence deters others from helping. So if they, if somebody is a, if you're a placeholder for someone who might help and someone doesn't help because you're there, then you have a problem. You had a duty to help. And I always think that about like rhinos, like they're a placeholder for people who might be more Ron Paul like, and they say they're fighting the good fight, but they're not. So I, I, so I remember when I first realized that HR, the human resources department at my work, wasn't really there to help me like they say they are. They're there to protect the company. And I feel like 
like labor unions are this external, like your external hard drive. It's like an external HR department, like the controlled opposition of, you know, HR. There aren't two sides. They're just an, an arm of corporate HR, industry HR. It's like the industry, the industry's HR. That's what I, that's the feeling I get. And that's probably why there's this huge push to get everybody unionized. I mean, when I see Starbucks getting unionized, they have been trying to suppress the amount of tips that to absorb, to appropriate the tips that waitresses get for, for since I've been broadcasting. So at least 10 years was one of my earliest shows. And I feel like if they can get wages and stuff to unionize, they'll give them $15 an hour. There won't be any more tips. And then you'll have a totally different weight service profile, kind of more like you have in Europe and not like the go-getters that we have here, like especially in New York and stuff. So they, I think they like the unions to control labor. All right. F the state says another quote supply chain issue they can use. Totally agree. A narco cutie. It's kind of like my pseudonym was Austro girl. Uh, this ties in with the fertilizer crisis. We will see the ramifications of this in the future. 70% of fertilizer manufacturers offline worldwide. If they can't ship what they do have, the companies will go under. Actually, that's a great point. That's what's coming out of Ukraine. And they did it very subtly. They didn't sanction the grain shipments. They said, oh, you can, you can ship your grain, Russia, but they won't allow Russian ships to be insured. And, and maybe Russia would take chances with ships, but not if they are considered a, like a war country, then you're Lusitania. You're probably Lusitania, the darn things or whatever. You just bomb them. So that's true. You can really disrupt fertilizer and grain if you disrupt the transportation system. And it's, and we have so many fail safes. Like they have really, the world was working extremely well <laughs> as far as just logistics goes and they're undermining it. It's, it's really disgusting. It's really makes you feel like there's evil in the world. Harrison says it's all for show. Unions vote for socialism. They will be rewarded that and more. You know, I think it's, I think it's even more sinister than that at this point. Uh, scapegoat says this scapegoat said this is at least partially in play. And what he had sent me was that they're, the unions are acting like this is a done deal with Biden so that they, the workers, if they vote against it, lose sympathy. And I actually think that because they ask, like, it, it, I am not sympathetic towards these workers. That's why I hesitate to kind of say that I know they're overpaid or whatever, because I'm obviously being fed from all directions that, that it, we should not be sympathetic towards the workers. So I wonder if there's an agenda there and we don't know the real story because some people are definitely on the workers' side with this. Um, I couldn't find anything really convincing that they, that they weren't well compensated for any kind of, for the whole package, if, even if they have stressful working conditions that they're just making so much money, like that's hazard pay, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's more to it than that. I'm sure that yes, Biden, I guess, got the unions pregnant as they say. Anyway, well, that's all I got on that, but it was a lot, but I have to say, thank you all so, so much for your kind words, your messages, your tweets, your reviews on the iTunes page for deep D dives with Monica Perez. Like the reviews are beautiful, really beautiful. I got lots of stars. Thank you. And I love the tweets and the messages and the emails. Um, I think people loved my white pill ending to a white pill summer. And I'll tell you, I was super worried about it because I absolutely felt like it was self-indulgent or 
like I kind of felt like it was showing you the slides to my summer vacation and like who really wants to know, but I just, um, you can't really share those insights without sharing context. And I'm really grateful that people got something out of it and took it in the, in the manner in which it was delivered. And if, and that, um, I think it's, it was, it was such an uplifting experience for me. I wanted to share it. And if you missed that, it's, the end of my deep dive from September 9th, 2022, which is last week. Uh, so enjoy that, please. And I am Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.